Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist feminist podcast that knows that words mean things. Today we have Zoe, Ozzy, and Adelaide. And today we are talking about terms that are commonly misused, misunderstood, and or co-opted from leftist feminist language. Many of these terms are things we've talked about on past episodes, but we're back to review them. And this won't just be us like naming terms and defining them. In case you're right now considering if this episode will be boring, it won't be. When when are they ever? (laughs) (laughs) We'll also be talking about the feminist history, what led to these terms, where they come from, all that good stuff. And a lot of these terms came from requests from all of you on Instagram. So shout out to y'all for participating and hopefully you find this helpful. And if you don't already, you can follow us at season Season of the b on instagram where we frequently ask if y'all have requests when we're planning our episodes this is participatory media and you can participate through our instagram (laughs) exactly (laughs) so starting off as the title of this episode would tell you we will be starting with emotional labor Longtime listeners of the pod know that this is there are a few hills that i will absolutely die on and this is the one yeah this is the one i would say so so the impetus for this episode came from when i was recently attending a feminist conference and i heard multiple speakers at this conference misuse this term which you hate to see it i did hate it and i think it's (laughs) very important because the way emotional labor is commonly misused tends to separate it from its relationship to labor and therefore capitalism therefore making this term used in a more broad way that, yes, separates it from its original use in leftist feminist spaces specifically. Mm -hmm. So although the concept of emotional labor has been used to mean many different things, its original meaning is in referring to the emotional labor that's required primarily from people socialized to be feminine within the confines of their paid labor, but is not the explicit purpose of their job. So one of the earliest examples that was used when this term was being coined was looking at flight attendants, who, of course, are primarily women, and the expectation for their labor to come with, you know, those chipper moods, even when they're being treated like shit most of the time. And we talked about this extensively on the emotional labor in the service industry ep a while back, but the expectation um, extends to other service workers, of course. Um, to act and look a certain way is a form of emotional labor since it doesn't necessarily affect the explicit labor of the job, which is to serve food, bus tables, um, do the safety thingy on the airplane, you know, all of those things. (laughs) But it can take significant emotional labor to act bubbly when we have our own deep emotional things going on or just don't feel like it that day. Yeah, so you may have literally just had an experience in your life because we all have that and like to have to perform in that way is so exhausting. Oh, and we will get to what performative really means. Truly. (laughs) In depth. (laughs) So um, in Arlie Hochschild's book called The Managed Heart is where she coined the term emotional labor and she wrote, quote, the management of feeling to create a publicly observable facial and bodily display in the workplace, the standards of which are often set by the employer. 
In order to produce the desired state of mind in others, the worker must induce or suppress feelings in an effort to change their own state of mind. So emotional labor, as probably everyone listening has heard, is often a misused term. It's not really referring to always having to pick the restaurant you're going to or initiate plans with people, um, listening to your friend talk about their life on the phone, etc., things like that. Using the term emotional labor in this way separates it from the labor market where the exchange of money is intended to include not only the physical and mental labor, but the emotional labor as well. And so the work it takes to change your own state of mind in order to create the desired state of mind in others is inherently exploited for profit. Exactly. Um, I also just want to say that the way in which women and femmes are often the keepers of information, like say you're in a relationship like you like women and femmes are often the ones who like know when birthdays are, know when something's coming up. And also because of the way we were socialized, often see when something's dirty faster or and know how to clean it better, which are things that may need to be trained into folks who weren't socialized as girls. And obviously this isn't completely along gendered lines, but it's like often the case, just like with what we, what um, information we're given as children. This is called emotional load. It does feel laborious and that's because it is. But in terms of the coined term, emotional labor, it needs to be tied to the workplace. Yeah, totally. And I really get why people want a term like emotional load, because like you're saying, Addie, I think that describes something really important as well. It's just a very different type of situation and makes sense to have a separate word for it. I kind of see like how this got confusing maybe originally for people, because I do think there's like some slight overlap between these two, like if you think about the way like women and people of color in an office are often expected to do sort of like additional emotional work, not just for customers or clients, but like for their boss or for other coworkers who like are white or men um, who like kind of inherently expect those things from marginalized people. Um, I've definitely been in workplaces where like For example, it was a random woman's job at the office to keep a calendar of everyone's birthday, even though this was in no way related to or part of her job description, just because like she did it once to be nice and then kind of like just got forced into doing that forever. Not random woman's job. I mean, yeah, it's like (laughs) it's not it's not her job. Um, Yeah. But like, you know, or sometimes like a boss will be like, oh, hey, like plan this birthday party for someone as part of your job. Um, But then like you're obviously not compensated in any way for that additional labor. Um, Or like, you know, it can even be things like if you're the one Jewish person in the office, you are expected to like know and keep track of all your Christian coworkers holidays and like cultural norms and stuff. But often people won't do that in turn for you. Mm -hmm. And like that's not going to be compensated. You may not get like holidays off. So there's this like overlap of like the emotional labor that's part of like a customer or client facing job. And then that labor of managing like your boss or coworkers emotional needs. But I also totally agree with what you're both saying that like emotional labor as a term is really tied to interactions that are constrained by capital and employment relationships. Um, I think like it's really important to have that as its own separate term, partly because, you know, theme of this episode, words mean things. Um, But I think also, like, 
sometimes conflating emotional labor and emotional load, what Adelaide was talking about is like, sometimes I feel like it encourages people to view personal relationships as being very like utilitarian Mm -hmm. and similar to like capital-based employment relationships, which I think is really harmful. Um, Like the whole point of the term emotional labor is that these are things that are like healthy and caring and fulfilling to do when you're choosing to do them for a loved one. The fucked up part is being forced to do them for a stranger as part of your job and then not being paid or given like additional mental health care that might be needed to handle that additional labor. Um, Like it's important to name the dynamics of emotional load, like the way that women are often more likely to end up doing household chores in a family or like logistical tasks, planning in a friend group, um, because we live in a society and people often play into these norms or don't challenge them. Um, And we'll talk more about this when we talk about the phrase, the personal is political, but it is totally true that personal relationships are shaped by these like external social dynamics in a lot of ways. But I do think sometimes like when people on Twitter are complaining about having to do quote unquote emotional labor with their friend or partner, I'm like, that's just called being a good friend. And like, if you don't want to do that for this person, maybe you just don't want to be friends with them, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I, in my opinion, it's like cis men should do those things more. Absolutely. I'm not really on the side of like, it's harmful emotional labor to have to remember your friend's birthday. Yeah, or it only feels, I would say that the only time that it's like, doesn't feel good like even if you love the person even if whatever is when it's just simply not reciprocated unbalanced yeah right like that's just not gonna feel good and that's why i think it can feel like labor and that's why these terms get conflated but like it it still is this different thing and you know it is within our rights to demand that equity for sure (laughs) hell yeah yeah so i think going off of that what it would be great to define as a word that means something is capitalism. (laughs) Yes. And this is actually also something that I was um, inspired to define on this episode by the conference I went to because Mm. I was in this space and I I really hope no one who was there is now listening to this episode. Um, If you are, hi, if I met you there, you're so lovely. None of this is about you. Um, But I was in this, like, discussion group where we were talking about transformative justice and, you know, like, systems of oppression. And someone said, I just want to name that all of this is because of capitalism. Mm. And that doesn't sit right with me. And we're going to get into why. So I think these kinds of statements, like, where everything's capitalism's fault, actually does a disservice. Um to make capitalism seem like this amorphous blob and Mm -hmm. blame everything on it and say like all problems are capitalism. A lot of problems are caused by capitalism and that is correct. Correct. Capitalism intersects with and thrives on white supremacy, patriarchy, colonialism, many other systems of oppression. However, those systems of oppression would not automatically end just because of capitalism. In fact, we see again and again how leftist movements maintain these sorts of oppression um even while being anti-capitalist so what is capitalism let's start there at its core capitalism is an economic structure based on the principles of private ownership of the means of production and the creation of goods and services for profit in a quote-unquote free market 
Um, Kellen could not be with us today, but they did leave their definition of capitalism as per my request. <laughs> um, as our doctor on the podcast. <laughs> yes, as our doctor of history. Um, so this is their Marxist definition of capitalism. Capitalism is a system of economic relations in which one class owns the means of production. This, of course, is the capitalist or bourgeois class. And another class sells their labor power to capitalists. That's it. That's what capitalism is. That's all it is. So, of course, capitalism is responsible for a lot of oppression because it's based on the exploitation of labor and resources for the purpose of generating profit for the owners of capital. In this system, the working class must sell their labor in order to survive, while the owners of capital profit off of that labor. This leads to income inequality and the concentration of wealth and power in the hands of a few individuals and or corporations, while everyone else struggles to meet their needs. Additionally, capitalism perpetuates systemic oppression and discrimination against marginalized groups, um, people of color, LGBT folks, women. We know all of this. Everyone listening, I'm sure, knows all of this. Um, and these groups face barriers to economic opportunity and face discrimination in hiring and promotion, which leads to further inequality and exclusion. Capitalism also has led to our lovely climate catastrophe. Um, and social injustice as the pursuit of profit often comes at the expense of communities and ecosystems. And this results in the exploitation of natural resources, pollution, environmental destruction, as well as the displacement of marginalized communities. So of course, here at Season of the Bee, we are here to shit talk on capitalism to the end of times and beyond, but it's important to know what capitalism actually is and knowing what that means in order to be anti-capitalist and anti all of these other systems of oppression that that are tied to it but not the same thing exactly totally. and i also just want to say that i think sometimes the reason why people say these like all-encompassing things is also because particularly in the united states but literally everywhere basically but it's really egregious in the united states the state cannot be separated from capitalism and the way that the state enacts injustices, which obviously we've talked about at length, particularly lately, but also the entire existence of the podcast, you know, the state is an arm of capitalism. The state making its decisions and um, amplifying injustices and basically at every turn choosing profit over people is because um, our government has so much closed doors shit and lobbying that like corporations are lining the pockets of politicians um and so obviously it even feels greater than this like thing that only relates to labor because the profit system means you have power in the political system um and obviously we will get into the personal is political and how that you know is all all a thing as well but just wanted to add that because obviously it shows up in that way as well yeah totally i was thinking about that too with like neoliberalism in general which is exactly essentially what addy's speaking to which we did a whole episode on once upon a midnight dreary <laughs> i don't remember what episode it was but time we is episode. fake anyways yeah, about neoliberalism. Um, Check it out. But yeah, yeah totally. And capitalism is insidious and does have its hands in many grubby little pockets. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so, 
but yeah totally well let's talk about the word performative um, let's talk about it. <laughs> this is going to be a little bit of a rant. So take us away. Austin has a <laughs> TED talk prepared. Buckle the fuck up. <laughs> Honestly, we love an Aussie rant because it's not as commonly seen as, as some of us who love to rant. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> it's airy season and they came prepared. Let's fucking go. That's um, so performative is one of those words that is so overused at this point that it basically seems to mean nothing at all. Um, so I wanted to take us back to the origins of this word because I feel like that's pretty instructive as to its purpose as a concept. Um, so performative was first coined by a linguist named J.L. Austin, um, and this is still taught as like a concept in linguistics and literature study, or at least it was approximately 10 years ago when I was in college, rip. Um, rip. Austin's most, yeah, I'm just like, I, I can't believe that was 10 years ago. I feel old. Um, but so Austin's most famous book is probably this one called How to Do Things with Words, um, descriptive title. And that gives us a great sense of what he meant by performative words. So literally doing things with words. Austin defined performativity as language that itself functions as a form of social action or change. So he didn't necessarily mean this solely in a political sense. One of the classic examples would be like during a marriage ceremony when someone says, I do, the act of saying those words is like the action that causes them to be married. Unlike, for example, saying, I want to get married, which is like a statement about marriage, but it does not in itself cause you to legally be married. Um, or if you say, like, I promise to do such and such thing, you're sort of entering into this social contract wherein there might be specific consequences for not doing that thing or not doing that thing could be seen as like a breach of your friendship with that person. It's the saying of the actual words, I promise, that sort of like forms that social contract. Um, but Austin also didn't exclude more political forms of speech here. And that definitely is part of what he was talking about. So like another common example would be when a judge says, I sentenced this person to jail, the words itself are doing that action of incarcerating someone. Um, like without that statement, the sentence would not happen. Um, so given those origins, it's especially funny to me that one of the primary ways I hear this word used today is basically to mean the opposite. Like what usually today, if people say like a speech or something is performative, they more likely mean something like the speaker wants us to think they're doing a political action, but their words are actually like empty and not tied to anything meaningful, uh, like any real material change. Um, so I'll I'm going to be honest, oh, my yeah. mind is kind of blown right now. Yeah, same. I literally was like, that's what I thought it was. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, wow. it's kind of wild, but it's just, I think it's just like a, like change of use kind of thing. I mean, you know, language evolves. Mm, um, you're but all it's learning here today. Very different from what the word was originally intended to mean. Totally. Um, so I'm going to come back to that sort of modern day usage in a second. But the other way that I usually see this word used today is in sort of the Judith Butler sense of like gender as a performance. Um, so like performative gender actions. Um, and that meaning of the word is actually more consistent with its origins because Butler was drawing on Austin's concept of performativity when they describe gender as a series of performative acts. 
obviously we could devote an entire episode just to the concept of gender as a performance, but to put it briefly, um, Butler argued in their essay, Performative Acts and Gender Constitution, that gender as a social category is best understood as a series of actions they're sort of continually interpreted and contextualized by the outside world and sorted in various ways into these two social categories of male and female or men and women. Um, so a common model for how gender was understood before this was something like, for example, someone has a deep inherent felt sense of being a woman, therefore they want to do feminine things like wear a dress and wear makeup and then outside observers can look at them, see that they're doing those things, and assume because of those outside things that that person has like a deeply felt sense of being a woman and is a woman in some inherent sense. Um, so Butler argued that instead, the actual way that most people come to understand their gender is something more like, like I walk around wearing a dress and people respond well to me and treat me nicely and find that normal. Therefore, I understand that I'm expected to wear a dress. Therefore, I come to understand myself as a woman or that society classifies me as a woman. Um, and conversely, you might have something like, I play with dolls and my dad gets angry and yells at me. Therefore, I understand that I'm not expected to play with dolls. Therefore, I understand that society expects me to be a man. Um, so obviously, this is all like a huge oversimplification, like everyone experiences hundreds, potentially thousands of these interactions in like every single day. Um, but that's the basic idea. So the distinction Butler was making here and the reason why the word performativity was important to this is that they were essentially arguing against the idea of gender as just like proceeding sort of automatically and directly from biological sex in some inherent sense. So they were saying like, rather than say painting your nails, just being an inherent like biological urge that women tend to feel more than men to like be pretty and you know accentuate their appearance instead they were saying a gender presentation choice like painting your nails is an act that might be the same as or different from your internally felt sense of your gender so those like performance acts of gender then influence how political systems and other people treat you which feeds back into and informs your sense of your own gender. Um, so it's almost the opposite. Instead of like a deeply felt sense of gender automatically producing these external things, it's like trying those external things and seeing the response that produces your internal sense of your own gender. Um, so basically Butler was calling attention to how gender identity and presentation are different, um, which I think has since become a much more dominant part of like mainstream sort of discussions of gender, which is largely thanks to people like Butler who laid this theoretical groundwork. Um, so to kind of go back to the Austin linguistics examples and like compare this in like the marriage thing, for example, it's not that you're like inherently married. So then you say, I do. It's like you say the words I do, and then that leads to a social ritual that then causes you to be married. Or in the courtroom example, you're not inherently a criminal, so the judge says, I sentence you to jail. The judge says, I sentence you to jail, and that literally criminalizes you and legally makes you a criminal. Um, so you could argue that without judges, we'd have no criminals at all. And in fact, that mm -hmm. is what many abolitionists do argue. Exactly. Um, the law creates criminals, not the other way around. So Butler is making a similar argument for gender, essentially that like, 
gendered violence and harassment and like power structures around gender are what socially constructs gender categories as we understand them rather than some inherent gender differences inherently cause like sexual assault or transphobic hate crimes, for example. Um, so I do think that the term performative is very useful in that more sort of academic sense. Um, but I also like in general find this to be kind of in the weeds and like if I'm talking to someone who did not like take gender studies classes in college, I don't usually find this the best way to discuss these topics in casual conversation. Like if I were explaining my trans identity to someone, it would make way more sense to me to say, I don't know, something more like, I realized that I didn't want to be stuck in a narrowly defined box of man or woman rather than like, I realized that gender is performative and I could choose different gender performance acts as long as I was okay with those acts having different social consequences. Like, that, the second one is accurate, but it just sounds more confusing to a lot of people. Um, totally. And I think there's also like a common way, because it's sort of a like tricky concept, there's this common way it's misused where like some people will think that Butler was arguing that people have no inherent feelings about their gender at all. Um, so they were more so arguing that you could feel like one gender but choose to present as another for safety or like you might choose different gendered performances in different contexts like wearing a speedo to the opera would get a very different reaction than wearing a speedo to the beach um, although if you are wearing a speedo to the opera that's great I love it um, an absolute so, iconic move yeah like go for it um, but the the response probably will be different um I guess I get a little bit frustrated by that sort of misunderstanding of Butler's work sometimes because like I feel like that idea can then lean into transphobic arguments that like gender isn't real and therefore transness isn't real and therefore trans people shouldn't have health care. Um, and like Judith Butler is non-binary there. They've been like quite supportive of trans justice. And I it just annoys me when their work is misrepresented like that because I don't think that that's what they were arguing for whatsoever. Um, but I do think it's useful for us to have a term for gender performance. Um, I mean, even the concept of like gender presentation versus identity is has its roots in this sort of idea. Um, and I guess like I think it's kind of inevitable that such a useful term would become sort of watered down and like be used to mean different things by different people over time. Um, but the use of performativity that I find much less useful and much more annoying is the one I was talking about earlier, which is kind of like the opposite of its original intended use. So when people kind of use it to mean something like this person is trying to make it look like they're doing something important without actually doing anything materially meaningful. Um, I feel like that concept may have had some value at some point. But honestly, at this point, I find that most people being called performative are like obviously evil in my eyes. And it's just kind of funny when people act like shocked that they're doing something performative. Like, I don't, if someone says Joe Biden or Elon Musk or whoever is being performative, it's like that's literally their whole gig. Like, that is their job. That's all they do. What is the point of specifically saying this one act is pompous bullshit when like, 99% of everything elites ever do is pompous bullshit because they don't actually want to take meaningful steps to dismantle capitalism. Um, like, it's just, yeah, I, I feel like there's really no, like, use value to that case. Um, 
And in that sense, I feel like the most useful definition of performative that I've heard recently um, is from this like radical DEI worker named Lily Zhang, who basically said that when they hear someone describe something as performative, what they think it actually means is just like, I don't trust the person I'm talking yeah. about. Um, like it's basically saying, I don't trust that this person is going to follow through on the things that they're saying. And if you say like, oh, that speech wasn't performative at all, it's like saying, I definitely trust that that person will do whatever work they're promising to do or like will do whatever they're saying they're going to do. Um, and I think this just makes it clear how pointless it would be to say something like this if you're in a group where everyone already doesn't trust that person. Like in the Joe Biden example, it's like, sure, you could say that, but sort of like, why Why is that useful or why does that need to be pointed out? I think in my mind, like when someone says performative, I usually just translate it to like, I don't like or trust that person because that just makes more sense to me and is easier to understand than feeling like I'm trying to decode some weird jargon every time someone calls anything performative. Like it basically just means I don't like you. Um, it also makes it easier to make your own judgments about something when you remember that calling something performative in this sense is essentially just like stating a personal preference or opinion. It's not really like a formal political category that we all need to agree on or can agree on, sort of like an inherently um, subjective judgment. Yeah, this is really interesting because I think the person I have used this the most about it's not necessarily a person that has power. It's a person who tried to wear my personality as their skin. Mm. And it was a literal yes. performance. I and mean, that so sounds like a great use of it. Yeah. <laughs> that is how I have used it is like. I was just saying you also didn't like or trust them. So. Oh. Absolutely. It does fit. Which is, yeah, I'm not saying it's like n you're never allowed to say it. Also, no, speak, it's just very interesting. Like, yeah. As like someone who grew up as a theater kid, too, I see it as this like act, right? Like being performative is putting on an act. And so that, I guess, is like how I totally have used it. I, I've definitely seen it in the other context and have used it in that way as well. Um, Maybe not the original way, but the Judith Butler way for sure. Um, and it, so it's just really interesting, right? Like words. Yeah. Mean and it's like, I feel like there's like, there is a reason for it because it basically, like, overall, it's just sort of when like your actions and your words are overlapping or there's like a mismatch. So, like, that could be because you're saying something and that becomes the action, or it could be because you're like, doing an action that actually is very, like, performative and has no, you know, like, content to it. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I guess it's just one of those words that can basically mean, like, a bunch one of thing or things. its opposite. Right. And so it's, like, I really feel like you have to, like, clarify when someone's saying it, like, totally. what do you mean by that? If you want to actually know what they're talking about. If they're talking about Elon Musk, you can probably just move on. But... <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, I also just wanted to give a shout-out to Judith Butler. Um mm. So they came out, or they didn't really come out. They are now identifying as non-binary, and it happened through an interview where they were asked about their gender. And they said, um, I don't have an easy answer, though I'm enjoying the world of they. When I wrote Gender Trouble, there was no category for non-binary. But now I don't see how I cannot be in that category. Mm. 
And yeah, I really like that quote. I think that also just speaks to like how they see gender. Like they're like, they, that's a whole world. Like I'm just exactly. living in it. Yes. Yeah. Love that. Love it. Yeah. So next we're going to talk about intersectionality. Another big buzzword. So intersectionality is a concept that recognizes the complexity of social identities and their interconnectedness. It was coined by legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989 as a way to describe the ways in which race and gender intersected to create unique and inseparable experiences for Black women, specifically. The idea has since been expanded to encompass multiple forms of identity, including but not limited to um, race, gender, sexuality, class, ability, and nationality. And more. Intersectionality acknowledges that individuals have multiple identities and that these identities interact to shape their experiences of privilege and oppression, and that you can't separate out those identities when looking at someone's privilege and oppression. Totally. I also just wanted to note here briefly, because we're talking about sort of how this word has been expanded beyond its original use, just like how narrow the original definition of this term was. Um, so when Crenshaw coined this, she was specifically writing about legal claims of workplace discrimination. Um, essentially, it used to be the case that if a company hired like black men and white women, but never hired a single black woman, you could never successfully sue them about that because they could say, well, look, we hire black people and women. So clearly we're not racist. We're not sexist. So like, how can you sue us? Um, and Crenshaw pointed out that by failing to look at the specific intersection of how Black women specifically were treated as employees, the law was sort of like structurally excluding the way that these discrimination claims couldn't like couldn't be filed by Black women, as opposed to like a white woman or a Black man who might have a similar claim. Um, so this isn't to say that Crenshaw was arguing that like legal non-discrimination things were going to end racism or sexism by any means. Um, she just, you know, is an attorney and was simply trying to call attention to a specific structural harm of the criminal legal system. And she coined this term specifically to describe that. Um, but as Zoe is going to get into more, this concept of like the intersection of marginalized identities leading to harms that are more than the sum of its parts, you know, like different from each of those oppressions by themselves. Um, that idea also has a long history in activist work outside the legal system and has like really gone along with how Crenshaw coined the term. Yeah, so um, like Ozzy was saying, although Crenshaw coined the term, the origins of intersectionality, this kind of concept around it can be traced back to the struggles of Black feminists who sought to address the ways in which their experiences were often ignored or marginalized within both mainstream feminist movements and anti-racist movements. And so they recognized that gender and race intersected in unique ways for Black women and that these experiences could not be reduced to one or the other. So although it was not yet called intersectionality, Black feminists, including friends of the pod, such as Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde, and the Kabahi River Collective, have a long history of addressing this concept. Um, it was also referred to as the Matrix of Domination by Patricia Hill Collins in her essay, um, which is called Black Feminist Thought, Knowledge, Consciousness, and the Politics of Empowerment. But I want to focus on the Kambahi River Collective for a moment here, whose work really preempted this notion of intersectionality. So the Kambahi River Collective was a group of Black feminists who formed 
1974 in Boston, Massachusetts, and the collective was founded by Barbara Smith, Beverly Smith, and Demita Frazier, among others. So the group was named after the Kambahi River, which is where Harriet Tubman led a successful raid during the Civil War, freeing over 700 slaves. And the Kambahi River Collective was unique in its focus on proto-intersectionality through recognizing the interconnectedness of race, gender, sexuality, and class, and shaping experiences of oppression. The collective is best known for its publication of the Kambahi River Collective Statement, which was released in 1977. And the statement is considered a groundbreaking document in the history of Black feminism, as it explicitly called for an end to all forms of oppression, including sexism, racism, homophobia, and classism. Specifically in their statement, they wrote, quote, if Black women were free, it would mean that everyone else would have to be free since our freedom would necessitate the destruction of all systems of oppression. And um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the full statement, but it's free to read online and it's relatively short. So we're going to link to that in the episode notes so that y'all can read it. Yes. Plus, I feel like either most or all of the writers of that were also queer. Yeah, they are pretty much all um, lesbian black feminists. Yes. So this brings us right into the next request we had from Instagram, which was identity politics. And identity politics was current was coined by the Kambahi River Collective in 1977 to articulate their specific politics. So follow along here. <laughs> it's not what many people think it means. <laughs> Barbara Smith, one of the founders who I mentioned earlier, was asked about this term just a few years ago when folks were arguing about identity politics during some of the elections. And she said, quote, By identity politics, we meant simply this. We have a right as Black women in the 1970s to formulate our own political agendas. We don't have to leave out the fact that we are women. We do not have to leave out the fact that we are Black. We don't have to do white feminism. We don't have to do patriarchal Black nationalism. We don't have to do those things. We can obviously create a politics that is absolutely aligned with our own experiences as Black women. In other words, with our identities. That's what we meant by identity politics, that we have the, that we have a right. And trust me, very few people agreed that we had that right in the 1970s. So we asserted it anyway. Mm-hmm. So to be clear here, identity politics does not mean that we should accept like lame status quo politicians simply because they come from people of marginalized identities. Right. Um, it doesn't mean you should vote for women or women of color because they are women and or women of color. Um, It doesn't mean Biden saying he would select any black woman as his VP and then choosing literal enemy of the pod, enemy of the people, Kamala Harris, is like somehow this like woke Mm -hmm. act. Mm -hmm. Um, It was coined to mean, as I said, that black women within socialist movements specifically, because that was a radical collective, had a right to come up with um, political agendas and state their opinions in spaces that are often prone to class reductionism. And that's what they were really fighting against in that. Yeah, totally. All right. So we're switching gears a little bit here. Um, we're going somewhere else now. This was also an Instagram request. Yes. Uh, we're going to talk about gaslighting. <laughs> Let's get into it. Let's get into it. This one is tough, but I am passionate about this one. So 
Gaslighting is a specific form of emotional abuse where the abuser is denying and or manipulating the truth to maintain control and um, make the other person doubt their reality in an interpersonal dynamic. In its most intense form, which I have unfortunately experienced, it is brainwashing. Um, and I think it might be helpful to give a concrete example of what this may look like so I can better illustrate what gaslighting is not. And these stories just go right into one another. We love to see it. Um, I'm going to share a story that one of the co-hosts was a witness to, um, which is always a helpful thing when you're being gaslit because they can help be like, um, what? And I mean, luckily for me, this specific instance, um, it was... In this instance I'm about to share, it was after that much more egregious gaslighting that I've experienced, so I knew what to look for and how to stand my ground. Um, but it can be very, very scary and disorienting. Like, how do I express and explain to people that I was brainwashed? Like, you know, it's a very that that is a very difficult thing to explain. So I'm going to do this other one. <laughs> yeah, well, and also just worth noting, I mean, people that are good at gaslighting are good at gaslighting. Like, that's how it happens to so many people is you usually don't notice it's happening. Yeah. Um, no, until yeah. you eventually do. But like they know how to like start small and, and build up like. Yeah, there's it's a terrible evil skill, but it's a skill nonetheless. Exactly. And like, I can't even tell you the amount of people who have been like, but you're so strong willed. You're so blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, you you think yeah, I had something to do, to do with, with this? It had nothing to do with what my abilities are. These people are fucking insidious. So I appreciate you saying that. Okay. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, spoiler alert, the co-host that knows about this is Zoe. I mean, like, I think everyone knows about it, but Zoe was there for it. So, Spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler I was going to say I plead the fifth, reveal. but like, no, I don't. Yeah, no, Zoe knows. Um, so I uh, was dating this person and, um, you know. I feel like we need, we need a fake name for the sake of the story. You come up with it. Artichoke. Okay, perfect. So Artichoke um, and I had been dating for a while, a little while, like a, f a couple, few months. Um, and we had an intense conversation just where I was like stating my needs, basically, um, and how they weren't really being met in the situation. Um, and then I was going out of town. Um, so like, yeah, I recognize that like me bringing it up the day before I was leaving, maybe not the greatest thing, but not the fucking point. Um, going out of town to visit Zoe for a, an, a very intense weekend. Um, uh, and I was only going to be gone for three days. And I was staying present with one of my BFFs, obviously, who was going through it. Um, and being present with Zoe was a no-no, first of all. Um, it created a fucking problem. Um, they told me um, that if if the roles were reversed, they would have driven back home, which is truly ludicrous to me because what? Um, I was gone for three days. Again, going to reiterate that. So I was dri <laughs> driving back um, on my way back uh, from Michigan 
and fucking driving through Canada because that's the fastest way to get from Michigan to Buffalo and driving back to show up for this person, basically. Um, And they on the phone were like, you know, we should take space. And I was like, okay, like I was asking questions about like what they meant by that. Then they texted me a picture of a bag of things that they dropped off on my porch. Again, wasn't home. Uh, So I had to text my roommate to do that. So I was like, wow, okay, so you literally broke up with me for this. And um, they kept trying to tell me that I was the one who made the decision to break up with them. And they kept reiterating it and kept reiterating it. But as I said, <laughs> these the, that's literally not what happened. Um, the opposite happened. And I had the fucking receipts. Um, I want to add for the effect of the story that Addie had been with me and my parents during this trip. So my parents, I'm getting updates from Addie and my parents who knew the whole situation were like, are they okay? What's going on? Like my parents are getting all these updates as well. (laughs) Who are um, therapists. And so they know. Oh yeah. We were like Addie's three little cheerleaders being like, what is happening in this car ride? Right. Well, it was reciprocal for our Mm -hmm. Um, so when I told them that I couldn't have any conversation with them without them acknowledging that they were in fact the one that broke up with me they refused when I said that they were trying to gaslight me into believing that I was the one that broke up with them they said no you're gaslighting me (laughs) so this brings me to what gaslighting is not Gaslighting is not when someone tells you a truth that you're uncomfortable with. If someone is approaching you with honest feedback, an honest look at something that's going on, that's not gaslighting. Obviously, this feels tricky because everyone is viewing an experience from their own perspective. However, as you may see in the story I told, there are ample concrete evidence pieces that can help you understand what actually happened. Totally. Um, To go back to the word performative a bit here, I think it's also useful to look at the actions that each person is taking in the situation. So like, for example, in this situation, you ended your trip early and drove back to help them with something while they threw a bag of your belongings in like a very visible semi-public area, knowing that you weren't home to get it right away. Um, Like, obviously, this isn't a one-to-one thing, but I I think when we're talking about gaslighting, it is very important to look at people's actions, not just their words, because like, the words are deceptive. That's the whole point. Yeah, Um, exactly. And like, often if someone is gaslighting you, their words and actions won't match up. And that's like, I think often like the first clue for people that they're being gaslit is like something is going on here that's not lining up or not making sense. Um, Oh, Kellen also wanted us to add here, gaslighting is not the same thing as lying. You can lie to someone without engaging in this more systematic effort to make them sort of like doubt their actual reality. Yeah, also just a tidbit, this term came from a movie called Gaslight where this man is spends the movie gaslighting before the word gaslighting was a thing his wife into all of the he's doing all of these little things to like have her 
doubt her sense of reality and it's very uncomfortable to watch right um and yeah that hit like home for so many people that that is how this became a term wow and specifically i think part of it is that he's like uh he like turns down their gas lamps and like says that it's not or something so it's like the literal light levels are changing that's how wow. gas lighting yeah the term. he's like doing things in their home and then being like no Yeah, so switching gears a little again for another um, Instagram, what is it called? <laughs> Submission. Response. I'm doing, I'm doing really well. We're crushing it. We're, We're crushing, crushing it. it. Um, someone asked us to go over radical feminism, which actually made me as a feminist gender studies person so happy i'm yes. so happy you asked yes so i know that people commonly think radical feminism just means feminism that is also radical and i'm sorry to tell you that that is actually so deeply inaccurate that's what you would want it to mean and i get that it's not um it's not your fault if you don't know this but i'm here to tell you so radical feminism is a specific sect of feminism That's actually very different from like socialist, Marxist, anarchist, other leftist sects of feminism. Radical feminism emerged as a significant force within the feminist movement in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And the movement was characterized by a focus on the ways in which patriarchy and male supremacy were deeply embedded in all aspects of society and the need for a radical transformation of gender relations. Radical feminists argued that gender oppression was fundamental to all other forms of oppression and that the fight against sexism was central to the broader struggle for social justice so essentially everything here is revolving around patriarchy and like this binary notion of gender and that is the core oppression in this sect of feminism so one of the key figures of radical feminism is my personal enemy and enemy of the pot andrea dorkin (laughs) (laughs) i Actually, one of the first times I hung out with Kellen, I think we've mentioned this on the pod before, someone was antagonizing me, getting me to talk about why I hate Andrea Dorkin. Um, and Kellen was observing that. So <laughs> this is deep lore of Season of the Bitch. Yes. This girl, Andrea, this woman, this lady, her writings focused on the ways in which violence against women was deeply embedded in patriarchal culture. Dworkin argued that pornography was a key tool of male domination and called for its abolition. She also advocated for the recognition of sex work as a form of violence against women, rather than a legitimate form of work. Her belief around all of this stemmed from the idea that heterosexual sex was a form of rape due to women's inability to consent under patriarchy. And I will just share a funny moment because at this hangout when this was occurring, um, the person who was hosting was a woman and had a roommate who was a cis man and turned to him and was like, do you think that all heterosexual sex is rape? And he just goes, I really hope not. Oh, my God. Which, you know, is the best answer you could have as a cis man. Yeah, truly, actually. (laughs) Um. So yeah, but First, in the- I'm hearing about it, you know. <laughs> yeah, he was like, "Oh, I hope like, not." Oh my god, that's actually precious. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was. 
So in the 1980s and 1990s, the radical feminist movement began to fragment as some feminists moved into what is considered third wave in mainstream feminism, which was marked by the adoption of notions such as intersectionality, which we've talked about, and bringing in more identities and representation, while others wanted to continue to only focus on gender and specifically on women. So gender in a binary form. So when you hear terms like TERFs and SWERFs, which this actually came up in class in my class earlier today, and people were like, I don't understand how it's trans-exclusionary radical feminist. Like, how do you consider yourself a feminist? And then I'm here like, well, it's actually, you have to understand the history. <laughs> it's not that it's actual feminism, but it's a whole sect that existed in history. And like the w- reason it was Classic. radical at the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's so wild too, because I feel like, I don't know, like 10 or 20 years ago, like feminism was still such a bad word that this wasn't yeah. an issue. Like the only people using turf, like knew exactly what radical feminism was. And now feminism has become so mainstream that like people exactly. are confused by it because they don't know the context. But because people don't so know what radical feminism is. So... Those kinds of terms like TERFs and SWERFs actually are at the root of radical feminism. Like to be trans and sex worker exclusive is from the history of what I've talked about, the like basis of this area of the movement. And it's based almost solely on a binary notion of gender and that patriarchy, patriarchal domination trumped all others. Yeah. And I think this is one of those instances, at least in my opinion, that the original version I'm canceling. Um, Like, good to know the history, obviously, but just in the sense of, like, the term radical means a thing, the term feminism means a thing. And when we put them together, it should mean something. That makes (laughs) fucking sense. Um, And so I personally have been trying to abolish the terms turfs and swerfs from my vocabulary because it just feels more accurate to be, like, this transphobe or this person who's anti-sex work. Um, because, like, I mean, I, I obviously the history is important and obviously you are brilliant and I appreciate you. And also, like, because we live in a society, I'm just like, a radical feminist should mean us. Yeah, to be clear, I'm not dying on the hill of radical feminism. No, I'm dying on the hill of emotional labor. (laughs) It just this is what it has historically meant. Yes. Um, but yeah, Yeah. I I agree with abolishing turfs and swerfs. I think another problem is people use turf and transphobe interchangeably. Mm. Turfs are transphobes. Like right wing people like you know, right. All turfs are are transphobes. Not all transphobes are turfs. Right. that I think is my bigger issue with it for sure. And honestly, I am still at a point where like radical feminism to me so means the old meaning that like I don't want to use that to describe myself because it's like we're not but, like, really I using dream it, of but... a world where that will not be the case exactly i support you on your mission thank you yeah Vote no for that me. was just kidding <laughs> i will never I was... for anything <laughs> they were just really preempting right this episode in class earlier because yeah then they were talking about the term turf and someone was saying like oh those are the same people who want to like ban drag and i was like oh that's actually not true at all right and right. like 
please don't make me defend turfs because that's not where I'm at. However, <laughs> exactly, those like, are not the same people. In that <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those are different people who we also hate. Different and I want to be clear about that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And it's like again, like words mean things. Like the reason why radical feminists are transphobic is different from the reason why like right wing Christians are transphobic. Well, um, and turfs aren't really going to have political power. Right. Well, yes. So true. So it's different. They're not creating bills. Yeah. They're like making zines. Or anyway, you know, I'm just roasting them. They're now. like <laughs> a famous musician who makes fucked up comments, or you know, a famous right. um, author who makes fucked right. up comments. Yeah, I was gonna say like I feel like J.K. Rowling could be considered a turf. Absolutely. Even Absolutely. though like I'm not even sure she's really a radical. Well, Ani DeFranco. I don't think is she identifies. Does she identify as a feminist? J.K. Rowling? I think I so. Because she's so, I mean, I guess it's like, I do think turf can be useful for, like, people like her who are, like, Lib. pro-women, mm-hmm. quote-unquote. Right. Like, In my mind, like, you have to claim to be a feminist. That well, that's Anita Frank. You want women to be yeah. safe. Right. 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 But that obviously doesn't include trans women for that. Right. right. Then that's a turf. Exactly. Right. Right, no, that's Ani DeFranco, like, who literally the entire 90s was, like, creating music that was, like, so feminist and then, like, has been saying the most fucked up transphobic shit. So, like, that's a fucking turf. Yeah, well, a lot of the, like, 90s era radical feminism was, like, a lot of musicians, like, Riot Girl Spaces and stuff like that. Not that all of that was transphobic, um, but... We stand oh. Slater Kinney, who has trans <laughs> musicians in their band. We stand. Yes, but there was a lot of radical feminism present in those spaces as exactly. well. Exactly, exactly. And that's also where there were divides, where people started to be like, we know more about gender now. We should look at feminism differently. And other people who were like, no. Right. We've been oppressed enough. We need to stand our ground as women, the real women. Fuck Correct. yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. I know. It felt the same in class where I'm like, I don't want to have to explain exactly. why a turf and a transphobe are not the same thing. It's like a square rectangle situation. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Words mean things. <laughs> <laughs> to um, round it out. Yeah, we're we're going to end with an oldie but a goodie. The personal is political. So... The phrase, the personal is political, originated as second wave feminism was kind of coalescing as a movement. So it was in use as early as the 1960s, but it was really in the 1970s with the rise of consciousness raising groups that it became more widespread. So essentially, second wave feminists were issuing a challenge to capitalist patriarchy. Women do all of this uncompensated care work. A lot of them also have full time or part time jobs outside of that. But then when they complain, they're told this is just a you problem, like there are no structural issues going on here. Just seems like you're unhappy with the life choices you made and you should just get over that. So second wave feminists were saying like, no, these things that we're being told are personal or private marital problems. They're actually political problems. I mean, remember at this point, like early 1970s, women can't own property on their own. They can't open a bank account on their own had only just gotten the actual right to be paid as much as men with the Equal Pay Act, but, like, those changes still hadn't really happened in terms of actual payment increases. Oh, yeah, Um, still haven't. (laughs) I mean, yeah, still, and literally still haven't. Um, But it it was worse. um, Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Uh, But 
yeah, so originally the personal is political very specifically meant like the possibilities for the personal are constrained by the political. The second wave feminist movement was making this argument, which was similar to the gay liberation movement and the mainstream disability rights movement, which were both also kind of coming together at this time. And that argument as a whole was basically like, these things that you're calling political, to me, they're actually personal. They have consequences in like my emotional life, my personal life, as well as like my financial life or my literal ability to survive. Um, and like, you're telling me there's something wrong with me, but actually there's something wrong with society. Um, so the personal is political did not mean what I think it's sometimes come to mean more recently, which is like, anything that I do that is good for me personally is also good politically if I'm of at least one marginalized identity. And that specific interpretation of this phrase has become a huge part of like what we might call the corporate feminist movement today mm -hmm. or any movement that's like claiming to be radical or important while ultimately seeking assimilation into the system instead of like disruption or destruction of the system. Um, I feel like corporations and the state kind of use that sentiment to be like, oh, we should celebrate this company that's like evicting thousands of families because the CEO is a woman. Ugh. Or like, we should celebrate the police or the military because they hired one person of color or like whatever. It's like, no, these systems are still terrible. Um, like, you can't just put a face on it that way, like pinkwashing or whatever else you want to call it. Um so I just want to advocate for us to use this phrase or concept thoughtfully because unfortunately it is also misused a lot and really like weaponized by our enemies. Yeah. And I would like to say that also I feel like at least I have started using the opposite of this as well. Like the political is personal mm, in yes. the sense that. I love that. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm sure we've all met someone who has told us that they quote aren't political right now when someone says shit like that first of all i'm just like what do you even mean and i think when you you're dealing with people like us who like when we're talking about politics we're almost never talking about electoral politics like that's like really right. not what we are talking about when we talk about politics like we're talking about the impact of our, like how our society is. And um, so I just and think it's how we want it to be. Exactly. The vision we have for a better future. And I, I just think like thinking about the political as personal is also really useful because everything that happens impacts all of us on a personal level. Um. And to think that it doesn't or, you know, to be blissfully unaware of that is obviously like something that is more accessible to people who have the least amount of, of marginalization. Um, but yeah, all that to say, if you are someone who just like loves to vent about this shit, um, we've got a place for you. It's called our Discord. We love to vent about all the bullshit. Um, we have a specific cis venting channel. We love it. We, you know, there's lots we of... We have vibes. academic venting. Oh, yeah. 
There's a few different venting specific channels, but you can vent wherever you need to. You know, Revolutionary Romance and Revenge is also a channel. So <laughs> could could be romance, could be revenge, TBD. Um, but you or can join that at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at season of the B. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you're listening. Five stars only, baby. Oh, no, baby. You could tell that, like, Aries season, that, like, shift out of Pisces season. I'm like, wh- I'm still, like, drifting. Um, but my energy is like, whoa. Um, anyway, we freaking love you. Um, join us in the revolution that is our discord uh yeah xoxo season of the bitch love you love you you so much Bye. Bye. bye